Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Why Follow Jesus, with a message entitled, What God Requires of Us. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 6, verses 25 to 29, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. As I speak these words today, the Canadian government and the Prime Minister have been embroiled in a scandal. And one of the people at the heart of the controversy has undersworn testimony talked about in her words, my truth. I know what she meant. She meant that she was truthful and honest, but she was relating her perspective on the events of the scandal, knowing that her perspective might not encompass all that was true. So her truth meant, this is as far as I've experienced the truth. Now that's humble and it's appreciated, but still, I have difficulty with the words, my truth. See, truth itself is not a matter of perspective. Truth exists independent of perspective. That's why there's an investigation. One hears witnesses and after hearing, one tries to recreate the truth, not my truth or your truth, but the truth. Think of it this way. Imagine you're describing a mountain you've seen. Your perspective changes depending on whether or not, you know, you were at the base of the mountain or looking at the mountain from another mountain or climbing the mountain or seeing it from an airplane. Perspective of the mountain changes, but the mountain does not. It remains what it is, even while a given human being might never be able to comprehend what it is. And truth is like that. We may only see a piece of it, but the truth remains. It remains when we attempt to distort it or when we seek to deny it. It remains whether we ignore it or misunderstand it or when we perceive but a small part of it. Truth exists outside of human perception. Well, the same is true of God. Your experience of God may change, but he remains constant. He's never changing. He's always God. You may like or hate God. You may distort the idea of God. Or you may think of God only through your experiences, but God remains God. God is not an extension of your thoughts, your imagination, or even how you like to think about God. God remains God apart from human observation. Now, this is also true when we think about what God is doing in the world. Let me add one more piece to this. The same is also true about what God requires of us. You know, we may think, you know, God wants us to help him out, that we render necessary service to God, that our good works impress God. Some people even think that God is pleased if we don't bother him. Now, all these things are a matter of perspective, you see. But the truth, that is, what our creator, who is infinite, perfect, all-knowing, and all-wise, all-powerful and all-seeing, what our creator wants of us is, in fact, an objective reality. Well, let's begin by reading today's text. We've been studying John chapter 6, and today we've come to verses 24 to 29. It reads, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. 
Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Well, John chapter 6 is a unique chapter in the Bible. The chapter begins with Jesus' popularity growing to such a fevered pitch that many are talking about making Jesus king by force. And then the chapter ends with many of those very same people, well, they're disillusioned, and they leave him and decide never to follow him again. Well, this chapter is all about good and bad reasons for following Jesus. And if you have bad reasons, well, most likely, you'll find Jesus to be a major disappointment. You're going to be disillusioned with him. You'll no doubt conclude that Jesus is not what you're looking for. But on the other hand, if you're following Jesus for good reasons, well, you're going to want to follow him all the way through the gates of eternity, where you'll rule and reign with Christ with great joy. That's what's at stake in this passage. And the chapter begins with Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. It was an outstanding miracle. And because of that, many concluded that Jesus was greater than Moses, who provided manna in the desert 40 years. Jesus, they concluded, was the answer to their poverty, the answer to their oppression from the Roman government. Surely he should be the king. And so they tried to make him king by force. And Jesus withdrew from that crowd, and that night he came to his disciples walking on the water as they were rowing across the lake. And the next morning, the crowd realized that Jesus was gone, and they go looking for him. And eventually, they find him in Capernaum. You know, Capernaum, if you don't know it, was Jesus' base of operations while he was ministering in Galilee. Capernaum had become his hometown, so it was natural when the crowds didn't find him that they would eventually look for him there, and they find him. And when the crowd finds him, they want to know how he got there. And so instead of telling them that he walked on water, he ignores the question. He says, look, I know why you're looking for me. You're looking for me because I fed you yesterday. You ate your food and you know that I can feed you. But that's not a satisfactory reason to keep following me. And if you go forward to verse 27, he tells them what's defective about their approach. They're working for the food that perishes, but they're not working for the food that endures to eternal life. That is to say, your entire focus is on the temporal. You view me as satisfying what you need to survive right now, right here. But you've given no thought at all to your eternity. Now, did you notice that Jesus calls what they ate that day the food that perishes? Other translations will say the food that spoils. He means to say all that miracle accomplished was that about 5,000 and more people had a free lunch that day. And the next day they'd be hungry again. And if I did a miracle for you that day, well, then you'd be hungry the following day. All of that is temporal stuff. So let's stop for a moment and make application. I wonder if you've ever noticed what the majority of us spend our time praying for. Lord, help Uncle Ralph get a new job. Lord, help Aunt Martha be healed from her cancer. Lord, help Cousin Betsy make it through her exams at school. See, have you ever noticed that the majority of Christian prayers are taken up in the food that spoils? Uncle Ralph may get a new job, but in the end, I promise you, all the money he makes from that job is going to be left behind. It will perish. Aunt Martha, well, she might be healed of her cancer, but she's going to die of something else in the end, and her body will perish. It will spoil. Cousin Betsy may pass all her exams, but well, you, you catch the drift. Think as well of all the things that grab our energy throughout our lifetime. You know, money, marriage, jobs, vacation, travel. Well, all that stuff is the stuff that spoils. 
The majority of people work and are consumed with things that are temporary, things that will never last. And says Jesus, that's why you're following me. Now, to be clear, Jesus did heal. He cast out demons. He fed the hungry. He did all of that because he had compassion on the desperate condition of people. But this is the key. He did not come to help people only for the moment, only to watch them to succumb to something else in the end. Look back at verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. Uh, They did follow Jesus because they saw signs. I mean, they saw him taking five barley loaves and two small fish and then break them and then break them again and multiply them in his hands and feed thousands and thousands of people. I mean, that's why they were there. They called him the prophet. They thought he was as great as Moses. They were ready for him to be their king. That's a sign. But please notice there's a difference between a miracle and a sign. See, in a miracle, we see an event that's extraordinary. I won't here go into all the definition of what actually constitutes a miracle. You know, in some sense, a miracle is very difficult to define. What we might do is what the American judge once said about pornography. He said, I have a great deal of difficulty defining it, but I know it when I see it. Well, a miracle is like that. You know, in feeding 5,000 men, and remember, they only counted the men, so there were women, there were children on top of that, and to do it with such meager resources, well, by anyone's definition, look, that's a miracle. Ah, but a sign, that's another matter. You know, a sign is the thing to which a miracle points. So here's an example. Imagine you see a stop sign. Well, what is that? Well, it's a pole, and on the top of the pole, we see a large red octagonal shape with white letters that spell S-T-O-P. That's what a stop sign is. But of course, you haven't understood the sign until you know what it signifies or what that sign demands of you. Simply describing a stop sign gets you nowhere. And simply being amazed at the feeding of the 5,000, well, it's left this crowd as ignorant as before. They are nowhere further, and they still haven't embraced who Jesus is. In the month of June, Dr. Neufeld and a team from Back to the Bible Canada will be traveling to India to join the ministry team of Back to the Bible India to conduct two Bible teaching conferences in both Delhi and Hyderabad. These conferences will attract hundreds of pastors from these regions from multiple denominations in search of excellence in the instruction of expositional Bible teaching and to spend time in worship, fellowship, and offer encouragement amidst challenging and difficult circumstances of ministry. Perhaps this is a ministry venture you'd want to invest in. Your gift towards Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries would mean so much in support of this conference, the development and encouragement of pastors in these regions, and the airing of ongoing Bible teaching programs in Asia. To offer your support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's go back to verse 27. You know, Jesus tells the crowd that they have their focus all wrong. So here's an example. You know, on my way home from work, I have an off-ramp where there's always confusion. There are two large overhead signs telling motorists which lane to drive in, but a great many motorists aren't watching the signs. They just carry on and 
at the last minute, you see brake lights coming on and a number of cars crossing over several lanes at the last minute. And I always back off at my off-ramp because I just assume there's going to be chaos. And that's not because there are no signs. See, this is the case with this crowd. They are relishing the miracles of Jesus. I mean, they love them and they're motoring forward with joy. And Jesus is holding up signs. Don't work for food that perishes, he says. Don't even worry about that. Don't you see, I can provide that any time. Now watch the end of verse 27. He says, work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Notice that you put all your energy and effort into the food of eternity. And just like I gave you bread to eat, I'm also going to give you this bread that endures into eternity. Indeed, the only place that you can get this food is from the Son of Man. See, that's the only place because God has set his seal of approval on the Son of Man. So what does that mean? Well, think of how seals were used in the ancient world. Imagine an important person writing a letter, and after the letter is written, uh, the writer of the letter would roll that letter into a scroll and then drop a piece of wax onto it so that you couldn't open the letter without breaking the wax seal. But in the ancient world, before the wax would cool and harden, an important official might have a ring that was unique to him, and then he would take that ring and place it on top of the wax seal and make his unique impression in the seal. See, that impression meant that letter had not been tampered with. You couldn't open the letter unless you broke the seal, and that seal bore an impression that couldn't be replicated. And so when someone received such a letter, it meant that they could have the assurance that no one had opened it, and therefore it contained exactly what the letter writer had written. It was authentic. It was truly a letter that belonged to the letter writer. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. God the Father has placed his seal on me. So what does that seal look like? Well, it looks like, well, healing the sick and raising the dead and feeding the 5,000 and driving out demons. These signs are God's seal showing that Jesus is authentically from the Father. And he is the one who is authorized to give the bread that lasts to eternity. Well, by now, you've got to imagine that Jesus has got this crowd's attention, but still, they don't understand him. And the reason, of course, is that they're not following him for the right reasons. They only want temporal things, miracles, relief from their poverty, freedom from excessive Roman taxation, a Messiah who will establish them as free men and women in a free land. So this food of eternity, well, to them, it simply overcomplexifies the situation. Look, they say, we only want a king who's going to free us and a governor who's going to feed us. And so then in verse 28, the crowd asks, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, this question is based on the fact that everything that Jesus has said has just gone right over their heads. They, they haven't even the slightest idea of what he's just said. But they have heard enough to know that they need to be acceptable to God. And so they want to know what that all means. And so they ask, what are the works that God requires of us? You know, they're really asking, what does God want of us? And one could almost hear what I assume that these people would have been already taught in their synagogues. I mean, there they would have heard the emphasis on the necessary works of the law. Do what the law requires, they would have been told, and then you will live. 
Okay, that's their thought system. And Jesus is telling us that we don't have eternal bread. And and we've got to assume that it must mean that he believes that we haven't kept some law. So you see, once we have prior assumptions, I mean, we filter everything else we hear through those assumptions. And you can almost hear, you know, the question of the rich young ruler. He said, all these things I have kept, and yet what do I lack? Or you might hear the question of the Pharisees. You you remember, they asked Jesus, which is the greatest of all the commandments? Tell us what God demands. And that's what these people are asking as well. And what's really at the heart of this is arrogance. Yeah, you heard me right. A deep arrogance in the heart. See, this question assumes that these people believe that they can do what God commands. And quite frankly, that's what many of us believe as well, don't we? What must we do to please God? That's the question. Does it mean more faithful in my devotions, my Bible reading, my prayer? I mean, perhaps it means learning to break the bondage of bad habits. If I could learn to curb my temper, I'd be, a, I'd be acceptable to God. If I could curb my lust, free myself from addictions or something, what is it that I must do to do the works of God? And don't you see, all humanity is asking and answering these same questions. Some of the answers are, well, you need to meditate. Others say, well, you need to pray a certain number of times every single day. Repeat a certain prayer. You know, it's all about what does God require of us? Now, when I began this message, I pointed out that the answer to this question is not a matter of perspective. What God wants is not about our perspective. Rather, what God wants is an objective reality. But how do we know that objective reality? And Jesus says, well, you're going to have to listen to the one who has the seal of God on him. We come now to verse 29 where Jesus answers their question. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, at the outset, I mean, would you notice that the crowds ask Jesus, what are the works God requires? And they ask it in the plural. And Jesus responds by speaking of the work singular that God requires. You see, the crowds wanted to list all of the commands, and Jesus says, there's only one thing. Now, that's the the first thing that we should notice. And the second, please also notice, and it might be equally surprising to some of us, that Jesus calls the act of believing in the one whom God has sent a work. I say it's surprising because we know that we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. And so the idea of the work of faith, well, it seems odd and it even seems contradictory to some of us. And furthermore, the Greek grammar behind the verb to believe is here in the present tense rather than in the aorist, and that means that it's a continuous act of believing. In other words, the one work that God requires of you is that you continue to believe in the one whom he has sent. You know, Martin Luther once said, and he was commenting on this verse, he said, to depend on God's word so that the heart is not terrified by sin and death, but trusts God, Well, that's a much severer and more difficult thing than all the orders of the monks demand. Now, remember that in Luther's day, the idea of satisfying God's demand could mean a monk's life. That would be a life of fasting and of severity, of mortifying the flesh, and a lifestyle of simplicity and of poverty. Luther says, actually, what God demands of you is far more difficult than that. 
God demands that you believe in Jesus, and it requires great effort. Let me add to that another thought. There is, in the book of John, a relationship between working and believing. See, on the one hand, you can't be made acceptable to God by working for that acceptability. God's standards are far higher than you can ever imagine. I mean, what a small view of God you must have if you imagine that you, a mere human, can meet God's demands. You're deceived. On the other hand, to believe in Jesus is so much more than believing the facts about Jesus. You know, Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross for my sins. Now, it's important to believe that, but to believe in Jesus is to entrust your eternity into his hands. You know, one Bible teacher said, to believe is the highest kind of work, for by it, a man or a woman gives himself or herself to Jesus. That is, we entrust ourselves into his hands. We throw our lot, our future, our past, our only hope for eternity into the hands of Jesus and call him the Lord of life. And then when the winds of doubt and unbelief overwhelm our souls, we resolutely commit that we will not listen to the voices of our own doubts and fears. We will continue to believe in him. That's the work of God, believe in Jesus. Let me personalize that. There are times when I'm personally overwhelmed by my own sins. But then I remind myself that for every one look that I take at my own sins, I need to take 10 looks at the cross of Jesus and at the promises of Jesus and say that I believe in that. You do the same. Now, John, we're talking about faith and the importance of faith here, but can I ask you a question? What is the most difficult thing about your journey, about your faith? Uh, ben, uh, you know, as I struggle to believe Jesus, which all of us do, uh, there are a number of areas that I do that. Uh, one is when I face the disappointments of life, I need to believe that Christ is in the middle of it and has arranged those disappointments so that I might grow in him. So I need to trust him more. That's, that's one area. But another, it's, it's really a lot more basic than that. Uh, how easy it is when I sin to try to redouble my efforts rather than constantly believing that what Christ has accomplished for me on the cross covers all of my sin, that my acceptance before God was arranged by Jesus, and simply to look at him and believe his promise rather than despair in my own failure. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Why Follow Jesus, here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. 
Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board.